Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. In a world on the brink of disruption, two men will bring you clarity by interviewing some of the most intelligent and influential names in the blockchain world. Welcome to Show Me the Crypto with your hosts, Wade Patterson and Ulf Lonegren. Well, hi there, and welcome to Show Me the Crypto. My name is Wade Patterson. And I'm Alf Lonegren. We're a couple of friends from Canada who love learning about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and we're happy you're along for the ride. Whether you're a crypto virgin or you know your way around the block, we hope our interviews with some of the most intelligent and influential people in the blockchain space help deliver you with value. And on this episode, we're joined by Tegan Klein, co-founder and business lead of Edge and Node, the initial team behind The Graph, which is an index protocol for searching networks such as Ethereum. With a background in traditional finance, Tegan is a cryptocurrency expert and business development savant who is an advocate for personal freedoms and empowerment through the shifting paradigms of wealth and access to information. Tegan, welcome to Show Me the Crypto. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah, we are too. Really excited about this. And I want to get started. So my understanding is that you first heard about or discovered Bitcoin in 2011. And then it wasn't until five years later that eventually you heard about Ethereum. So the question is, can you kind of give us the full background of, you know, when you discovered Ethereum, you then kind of went full into the crypto side of things. How did you make that transition from traditional finance to crypto? Totally. Yeah, it's actually funny. In 2011, I was actually in college with Kevin Segniki, who launched Avalanche Protocol, and he wow. taught me about Bitcoin. Wow. I kind of I tried to buy it. I put it on the back shelf, went a traditional Wall Street path. Um, and then it was when I learned about Ethereum in 2016, after like six years on Wall Street, that I saw that opportunity to kind of create a new internet, to create a new financial system. And I think my time in, in banking really lended itself well to that. So I was in, uh, I started my career in investment banking at Bank of America. I was in the financial institutions group, which is like the nerdiest group of all <laughs> of the banking groups. We did all of our modeling in-house just because there's two different types of two, like ways to model within FIG. Um, so we didn't outsource it to the M&A group. And then from there, I moved to sales and trading at Barclays. And I was a market maker um, on the sales and trading floor. And so that just kind of, it showed me some of the friction points, some of the unnecessary like costs that banks add. And I think that that's really when the light bulb went off for me when I learned about Ethereum. Because I'm like, wow, we can just remove some of these unnecessary friction points. And this is the technology to do it. Um, and so I like, it was, I was at an event. My friends spent like three hours explaining Ethereum to me. And what made it really like solidify in my mind was when he downloaded Coinbase and he like sent me a quarter of an ETH. And that way it was like me seeing it in real time just allowed for that. Yeah, that light bulb moment. Um, and then from there, I just dove in head first. Um, it's just, yeah, immerse myself within the space. So going to, you know, diving in head first. I mean, you, you know, you have your friend show you Ethereum, introduce you, talk about it, how it works. But you know, that's all pretty surface level in the beginning. So how did you really go about educating yourself and immersing yourself in blockchain and Ethereum and, and how it works in greater detail? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I started with kind of reading the white paper. So I started with Bitcoin's white paper, then Ethereum's white paper. It's pretty technical. It's it's good to at least read it once so that you have an understanding. Um, and then from there, I started listening to podcasts and listening to online events. And then I started attending events in person. And I'm more on the business side. So I like talking to people, getting to, like I learned through talking and having conversations. There's also when you're in person with people, there are things that they'll say that they actually feel as opposed to just seeing everything on the record on the internet, um, which is, I think is helpful. So what I would do is I would listen to their talks, like different panels and keynotes. And once they were done, I would take notes and I would go up to them and say like XYZ really resonated with me, or I would ask for their card and then reach out to them and request like an informational interview using like the notes that I had taken to really like spark that conversation. Um, I also became like started volunteering at events. Like I like to be kind of hands-on and meeting as many people as possible. And I felt like volunteering was a way to expedite that. So I actually started volunteering at Crypto Underground in San Francisco. And it's the longest standing crypto event in SF. And I now lead that initiative. We meet almost every month, COVID depending. Um, but also building community. So like going on, there's different Facebook groups, like advanced crypto asset trading is a good one that I used to use um, back in the day. And it's still active today. Um, and crypto underground also has a Facebook group and then telegram groups as well. So if you're new to the space, like telegram is a great app to download. You can dive into a different ecosystems. So like the graph has a telegram group. There's like 25,000 people in there. You can ask any questions and most protocols have that. Um, so just get involved. Also Discord is a great way too. It's a little bit more technical than Telegram. Um, and then I started as I got more comfortable, just started moderating panels. And that was a great way to meet people. And then eventually I was invited to like speak on panels and speak in, on keynotes. But that's kind of how I got involved in, in crypto. Speaking of events, I came across a clip of you and it was speaking at Token 2049 in Hong Kong. And this, I think you were working with Orchid at the time. And there was a quote that you had. You said, I joined Orchid because I believe privacy and communication are the main uses of blockchain technology. And I thought that was interesting because a lot of people maybe think of money or like, you know, financial uh, sending of value as the primary purpose. So why is it that you believe privacy and communication are the main uses? Yeah, so I think that back when I joined Orchid, I was really excited about getting everyone equal access to the internet and building out. At the time that I joined, we were focused on building a very private layer one with a, a private VPN on top. So that way, everyone across the globe, like there was no censorship. And I think that that is still a very important use case of blockchain technology. And I'm excited to see it solved. I think it is like a very challenging piece, but I'm really excited about like the zero knowledge and like privacy on. Um, layer twos that we're seeing. Um, like Aztec is a really cool protocol that's focused on that. Um, so yeah, I, I'm really excited to see privacy be cracked because I think it's a really important component of, of blockchain technology. Nice. And your focus is on the graph now. Um, can you just explain like what exactly is the graph? How does it work? And uh, maybe the high level. And of course, if there's a, you know, a couple lower level technicalities we got to get into, let's do that too. 
Totally. Yeah. So the graph is the indexing and query layer for the decentralized web. So what does that mean? So you can think of the graph kind of like this open data layer that sits on top of blockchains. You have all this great data on the blockchain, like on Ethereum, on Avalanche, on Celo, but that data is not organized. So it's really hard for as a developer to build an application on a blockchain without the graph. And so the graph makes it 10 times easier and, and 10 times cheaper to build an application on top of blockchains. Um, and there was this narrative that there were no users on Ethereum back in 2017. And that's because you would open these applications, they didn't have the graph, and it would take them like 10 minutes to load because they're organizing the data. And the graph abstracts that away in a decentralized way. So the same values of Bitcoin, same values of Ethereum, open source, decentralized, permissionless, trustless technology. Um, it doesn't make sense to like put a bunch of centralized stuff on top of decentralized blockchains, in my opinion, um, even though we're seeing a lot of that. And we saw like Moxie call that out recently. I think Web2 developers are always going to call out that centralization. And that's what the graph is there to like unbundle every single piece of that decentralized technology or with an edge node, we're finding other protocols that are that are focused on decentralizing that Web3 stack. Um, but I think like the graph is kind of like this killer application when it comes to Web3 and a very core component to that decentralized stack. Um, and you can kind of think of it like what Google does for the traditional web, the graph does for blockchains and organizing all of the world's data. Uh, we view that, we, we believe that the internet will move to Web3 and that uh, everything will be kind of on blockchains in a decentralized way. All of the data will be verifiable, public, except for private data. This is kind of just public data. Um, will be like verifiable and any individual can verify that data themselves. So it's kind of like solving fake news within Web3 in a way once we crack that verifiability piece. Um, and we have an entire team of cryptographers working on that currently. So a follow-up to that, and this is probably just because it's hard for me to wrap my head around uh, every aspect of what the graph provides. But like when I first heard of the graph and and even have heard explainers, I compare it in my head, probably wrongfully so, to an Oracle service like Chainlink. But from what I understand is it's not, it's different. So can you maybe just explain a little bit of the differences between something like Chainlink and Totally. Yep, it's a great, it's a great comparison. So Chainlink is bringing off-chain data to the blockchain, which is very important. The graph is bringing blockchain data to the rest of the world. So it's kind of like the inverse of Chainlink. That being said, the graph can index all of Chainlink's Oracle data. And that's a very important piece, but like the graph is not an Oracle itself, but we can index Oracle data. So like Chainlink takes the railroad data, like the weather, brings that to the blockchain in a verifiable way. And then the graph can index that real world data on the blockchain. So is it primarily developers then that would be interacting with the graph or or with the graph or is it everyday crypto users as well? It's a great question. So everyday crypto users are using the graph. They just don't know it. And that's the, the beauty of the graph is it's abstracted away from them. Um, the developers build subgraphs, which are open APIs using the graph. And some examples of those are like Uniswap, Synthetics, Aave, Gnosis, Numeri, like almost every dApp within the crypto space is leveraging the graph in one way or another. Also like the LooksRare team is using the graph for their token component. Um, so it's just all on-chain data that people use the graph. But if you go to um, even like Coinbase is, is searching like the, the V3 of Uniswap as an example, like their subgraph, CoinMarketCap, CoinGecko, Mazari, like 
the way they access that data, those the, like the, the valuations of the, the tokens and, and different like historical data, that's generally via the graph because it's the fastest way to get on-chain um, public data. And how many blockchains are supported by the graph? I, I like understand started with Ethereum, but where, where is that today? Yeah, great question. So I think two years ago, it was just Ethereum and IPFS. And today it's over 27 different networks. So um, layer ones like Near, Avalanche, Celo, Phantom, Binance Smart Chain, Moonbeam, um, storage networks like IPFS, our weave is coming soon. Also layer twos. So Arbitrum, Optimism, ZK Sync, uh, Polygon as well, kind of more of a side chain, and then Oracles like Chainlink. So I think like the graph has the potential to become larger than any layer one, just because the graph interacts with every piece of the stack. Um, and it's exciting. It's like if you're if you're participating in the graph network, you are able to kind of get exposure to so many different use cases on blockchains, be it DeFi, DAOs, NFTs, like you have a little bit of exposure in that and directly by participating in the graph. So this may be a bit more of a philosophical question, but what there tends to be, especially lately, it seems or like in the last six months is an increasing level of, of maximalism, if you want to call it that, of people saying that, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum, um, it's kind of the end all be all. Uh, what are your thoughts around that? I mean, as somebody who really got immersed with Ethereum in the early days, but now with the graph interacting with so many different blockchains, like, do you have an opinion on maximalism in the space? So one, it's it's very human, right, to be tribal. Um, so I think it's very natural within us. I personally believe in a multi-blockchain future. I think that different chains will have different use cases. Um, I think like Bitcoin will likely remain the dominant proof of work coin. Ethereum will likely be the largest proof of stake coin. But that being said, there's so much room for other use cases across other chains. Um, and I think that maximalists play an important role in the space, specifically with the Bitcoin maximalists. And I, I think like the Bitcoin maximalists get a lot of slack because people kind of go at them hard. Uh, they also go at people in the space hard, but I do think like they play a very important role in holding the values and the line uh, for the space. And frankly, like the Bitcoin maximalists are the reason that the government can't shut down crypto because Bitcoin in and of itself cannot be shut down because you have individual people finding numbers and, and publishing those numbers when mining and, and securing the network with Bitcoin. And like the government can't say you can't do that. It's like a freedom of speech issue. And that's because like the Bitcoiners are, are very like firm on their values when it comes to those kind of things. Um, and so I have a lot of gratitude to the Bitcoiners, uh, but I understand like the maximalists within the space overall. Uh, but I do think we'll live in this multi-blockchain future and we need to kind of unite together and go after like the forces that be that are like centralized, like centralized web two companies that want to like retain the, the power in the walled gardens and like continue monetizing their users and making their users the product. Like that is who we should be going up against, not each other in the space when we share so many similar values. You mentioned that the graph has the opportunity to become bigger than any layer ones because of the fact that it's support it supports all of these different blockchains. And my question there is, with the graph being as um, overarching as it is for what it provides, 
you know, what does competition look like? Is there, and, and I mean that also from the aspect of those blockchains who are, you know, connected with the graph, will, is there a need to work with more, you know, graph competitors as well? Or is it kind of like pick one, go with it and you're good? Yeah, so the graph is the only decentralized indexing and query protocol that exists. We've been working on this for four plus years. Um, we've actually seen others that were centralized. One example of this is formerly Defuse, now called Streaming Fast. And they actually received a core dev grant by the Graph Foundation so that they're able to focus on the graph full time for the next five plus years. Um, and so they actually deprecated their centralized solution. They accepted and kind of acknowledged that you cannot compete with a decentralized open source protocol that's like a public good. And what's the point, right? Like if you believe in this mission, if you believe in making all of the data in the world public and verifiable, like all the public data um, open and verifiable, like you'll just join the graph in that mission. And there's a ton of different programs within the Graph Foundation to get involved. Uh, we also saw something similar with Figment. They had kind of a competitive centralized solution internally. They deprecated that and now they're focused on the graph full time. Um, so I think that we'll see a lot more of that, but I wouldn't say there are any like, com like competitors in the natural sense. Like it really is like, it's kind of like winner take all, right? And it's not a monopoly because it's peer to peer and it's like it's a public good. In terms of the the query volume, so I think I came across this somewhere when it comes to different categories. It was this past summer, I believe, this presentation for SmartCon when you were saying that DeFi leads the way significantly. And I'm curious if that's still the case with you know the rising acronym popularity of like NFTs and, and DAOs, or if that even falls into the same category. But is that still the case where DeFi is significantly leading the way? Yeah, great question. So right now there's about, I think it's 1.7 billion queries a day on the Grass hosted service. Um, I think Ethereum still leads the, the charge. It's about 66% Ethereum domination across the 27 different networks. And then Bitcoin, or sorry, um, DeFi is still leading the, the way, but NFTs have grown significantly and so have DAOs. Um, one of the challenges right now with NFTs is that the space blew up before the infrastructure was properly ready. So a lot of NFTs are captured within the graph when they just use like Ethereum, for example, or Ethereum plus IPFS. But the graph doesn't yet support Arweave. We're working on that integration. Also, one problem with NFTs is it's difficult to get NFT metadata in a decentralized way. So that's actually something that we're working on so that you're not just spending like 500K on a centralized JPEG that like if a company goes away, like OpenSea, like your NFT is gone. Uh, we really want to kind of solve that in a decentralized way. And I think that's important and it's coming soon. Nice. And yeah. can you tell us, so we recently had a conversation or two more in depth with our guests around web two versus web three, but this seems like a subject matter that you're familiar with. And if you could explain for our audience, you know, how do you define web two versus web three? What does that really mean? Yeah, great question. So web one was kind of like companies created content and those companies own that content. They shared that content. Web two was when we got to more platforms. So like Uber was created social media, like Facebook, Instagram, and it's more of the users creating content and the companies 
or those platforms own that content. And then Web3 is a brand new platform for fully decentralized applications to live. Um, and so Web3 gives the power back to the users, gives the ownership back to the users, gives the decision-making back to the users. It's really about kind of taking back the internet and really bringing the internet to what it was intended to do, right? Like the internet wasn't created to like make us the product or like monetize their users, but that's what the internet and web two, that's what it's incentivized to do. And with web three, because you have like token economics and like peer to peer tokens without any central intermediary, like taking or extracting value, you give the power back to the individuals and the individuals can be compensated commensurate to the value that they bring. I think for maybe the first time ever. So I'm very excited about the future of web three. I think web three is really the future of the internet. And we'll see everything move over to Web3 and, and it'll decentralize art, it'll decentralize um, finance, it'll also like break into like social media and giving that back, also creating like the metaverse in a fully decentralized way so that you can like model different things like within medicine, like imagine being able to like model in the metaverse before doing it in the physical world, like that is so powerful beyond just like this dystopian future of everyone like plugged into their, their VR headset, I think they're real use cases. Yeah, definitely. And and further to that, in regards to Web3, so I think it's one thing to wrap one's head around Web3 from like the the side of the, the creators and the people who are building Web3 technology. But what does it mean for the user? Like, how will an everyday person do they need to even know when they're in a web three world or is it like, should it be seamless and, and just, it's just going to go that way. And and soon you're on the internet, you're going to a website, you're, you're, you're experiencing web three, but you don't even necessarily know it. Yeah. So I think that web three is going to change the way we all operate on the internet. It will be very different and there will be use cases that we can't even imagine today. And that's like the exciting part um, right now, like the user experience is not great. Like even buying an ENS name, right? It's like you get your, you connect your bank account to Coinbase, you send money to Coinbase, then you buy some ETH, then you send your ETH to MetaMask. Like what are these wallets? What are these letters? Could I lose all my ETH? And then you like buy your like ENS domain. And that is like not an easy thing for most people to do. That being said, like that complexity is where the alpha lives, right? And like right now is the largest opportunity I think that we'll see in our lifetimes in terms of just like opportunities on the web. Um, like it's kind of like being at early days of like Wall Street or early days of the tech boom. Like I don't know if we'll get an opportunity like this again. So I encourage everyone listening to like really get involved because that's really where the alpha lies. And we'll get the long tail of the masses in the future once we improve like the user experience. Um, and I think all of that is coming. I think we're like six to 12 months away from kind of being ready for mainstream with Web3. Ulf, do you realize our audience has been either watching or listening to this episode for 20 minutes? 20 minutes? No, they should probably subscribe. Yeah, they should subscribe. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you comment and turn on notifications. And if you're listening to this podcast, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and even TikTok. So go check out the episode description. You can find all that information below. And we have an update on the NFT, don't we? That's right. We didn't previously mention this, but this NFT for OG supporter is a one of one. There will only be one of this kind ever minted. And we have a few surprises for the person who purchases it. The link is in the episode description.
And back to the episode. So, Tegan, one thing you just mentioned there was with regard to, to potential timeline of, of how quickly, you know, we could really start to see some differences. And I'm curious, um, in the sense of historically what has happened with with crypto and, you know, price run ups and, and bringing in people when it's in a bull run versus a bear market, maybe less people paying attention. Do you have any thoughts around that in terms of like, are we past that point where now it's just going to hopefully be like a steady, slow incline and, and gaining user adoption? Or do you think that that kind of market activity could impact um, the growth numbers in terms of people using Web3? Yeah, I mean, I think that we always see this kind of massive influx of capital when you have this new like technological advancement, and then you need time to build out the tech. And right now, there's a ton of money in the space, like billions of dollars are coming into the space, like valuations are really overflated for like projects that are pre launched I think that that could potentially have like very negative consequences on this, like within the space. Um, and that being said, I think like 99% of what exists today will be flushed out and won't exist in like five to 10 years. But the 1% that that will like will change the world will change everyone's lives. Um, and I personally, like I love bear markets just because I enjoy building. I'm like more of an idealist. Like I'm, I'm here for like the mission and the, the vision. Um, and I think that during bear markets, I get to work like in, and kind of see the space and who is in it for the right reasons. Um, and it kind of flushes out some of the, the other projects and, and people within the space. So personally, I am not opposed to a bear market. That being said, it does feel like there's just a ton of money and a ton of capital right now. And I don't know when, when that will change. That's one of the things, wait, what you just said there is one of the things I love that I've heard you say in the past. And that is, you know, in crypto, there's a lot of people who talk about things being inevitable, like this is just going to happen. But it seems like with you, you have this you take a level of ownership and you say, I want to make sure that we get to that future and I'm part of that. So why, like, where does that come from in that sense? Has that just always been kind of like your attitude with even back to the traditional finance days and everything? Or is it just specifically with crypto, you've been just motivated to be on, on that side? Yeah, I mean, I think that, so I'm from like a very small town in Ohio. I come from very humble beginnings, a town where people say like, you'll never be able to leave this place and I always kind of had aspirations of something more, something greater. Like I was like, I'm moving to New York City at, at the year of like eight years old. Um, and then moving to New York. So like I've always had people kind of doubting me and limiting me. And I've always used that to kind of fuel the flame. And I've always kind of been this underdog, right? It's like underdog from Ohio. Okay, now you're in New York City, but you're at a state school and not an Ivy League. You can't get into investment banking from a state school. Like, okay, watch me. I get into like a bulge bracket from a state school. Um, and so I kind of always had that drive what was lacking was like the purpose and the passion. Um, like I was not passionate about Wall Street. I was kind of like, why the heck am I here? And why am I doing this? And why am I working a hundred hours a week for a bank? Um, and it was when I learned about Ethereum that that like passion ignited. And I think that this is really like my life purpose. Like I'm here to like make the world better than I came into it. And the way to do that, that I see is with Web3. Um, and so, yeah, I guess... I don't know. I think it just kind of lives within me or something. I love it. I love that. It's just like blockchain technology, what it's doing for the world is incredible. But so many people, I think, still are so well, they just don't know. They don't really know the, the power that it brings back to the people. And 
for a lot of uh, people who aren't so educated on the subject, they just think of it as, uh, you know, another way to earn some money. Like it's, it's just another way to invest. And they look at it as a risky investment at that. I don't understand the, the sort of like underlying differences that it's going to make to our world as we go forward. And um, so I love that you stand for that and, and are really pushing to make it happen. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that's a great gateway drug to this like deeper meaning and finding that passion. And like, I started out just like trading, I was like trading like IOTA, like what was I doing? (laughs) But then I learned, okay, these are the values I need to look for within the space. Okay. Like Bitcoin and Ethereum have those values and they're actually like making a difference in the world. And what's powerful is like anyone across the globe who has access to a computer and Wi-Fi. like not only can you be involved in like play to earn and being a liquidity provider on like Uniswap and other AMMs or a delegator in the graph with GRT, you can also join the space full time. Like you can work at a project. Like if you don't have experience, you can do tech support. You can do social media management, community management. Like there's so many roles. Like within the graph, we have people all across the world, like in many different like areas that are working on the graph protocol in a full time capacity in like a life changing role. And so anyone watching, like, don't let your region limit you. Like all you need is Wi-Fi and a computer. Like that's so powerful. That's so true. I think that a lot of people don't realize that you don't have to be a developer. You don't have to be super technically savvy to get into this space and to provide value and to, to, to have a job, to get paid good money, right. And, and make a living, um, while making a difference. So that's a definitely an important message to get across. I mean, Hey, look at us. We're just doing this as a, as a side thing because we love it and we want to promote it too. So, so question here in regards to, um, you know, we touched a bit on how we're in arguably a bull market. However, recently things have been trending downwards. Depends on you know the timeline you're looking at, but you know with the the overall hype, if we look at this on like a, a year or so um, length, year or more, um, things are pretty up. You know, one to two years ago, Bitcoin was like I don't think as low as three thousand dollars, and now it's um, currently in the the forties. So, um, it's still crazy gains when you look at it from that perspective. And my question is for those who are new to the space, you know, do you think it's risky to get in, whether we're talking about to invest and buy coins or for the NFT space or, or anything in general, do you think it's like, is it risky to get in because things have been hot or is it like, well, you know what? It is still so young and to just get in and and get familiar with it. I think you have to do your diligence. It really depends on like the project, like 99% of these NFTs, like probably won't be relevant in five to 10 years. Like, so really do your diligence. So I kind of take the perspective of like, one, I'm in it for like greater reasons. So I don't really like trade or, or look at the market on a daily basis. But like what is risky is holding fiat dollars when the fiat dollar has been reducing by 7% year over year. So that's what's risky. What's risky is the fact that we have inflation that's higher now than it's been in 40 years. So Bitcoin is less risky than holding US dollars, in my opinion. Year over year, Bitcoin performs better than the US dollar, like much better. Um, so if you have the, the privilege of being able to hold on a long timeline, I, like that's what I recommend 
doing. And this is obviously not financial advice, but I kind of take the perspective, like whatever you don't need for five years, throw it in like Bitcoin, throw it in Ethereum, maybe like have like a web three portfolio. Um, but like the less risky assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum and like look in five years and just, and forget it, you know, um, again, not financial advice. Tegan, I know back in November you were, I can't remember the, who was, who you were being interviewed by. It might've been Bloomberg or something along those lines, but regarding the Bitcoin ETF. And so uh, are you able to share just a little bit of like, what's the situation? We're up here in Canada, but in the States, how is that progressing? And is it, is it doing so fast enough in your opinion? Yeah. So I think that, so the Bitcoin ETF was made, made a lot of headlines. I think it was actually very risky for Bitcoin because it's a futures ETF. So it's kind of how you can get a bunch of money into Bitcoin to short it. Um, we, what we need is like a spot-based ETF, but I think like regulators are very smart in what they're doing and they're kind of purposefully not approving a spot Bitcoin ETF. I think we're pretty far away from that though. I hope I'm wrong. I know Grayscale was working is working on something there. Um, I, I think that, yeah, we'll see. I feel like we're still kind of in this fight fight situation with like banks versus crypto, not yet accepting it. Though I will say it's now politically unpopular to go against crypto. Like so many people hold it. Fidelity reported that like over 33% of institutional money is already involved in digital assets. I think over 15% of individuals here in the States like hold crypto. So it's like politically unpopular to say like, we want to outlaw crypto or we want to ban crypto. Um, And when I got into crypto like five years or six years ago, like it could have gone to zero, but I think like now it like, that's no longer a question mark in my mind. Like it's much more stable, much more like widely accepted. And I would say like Bitcoin is now like, like known about to the masses, like there's mass adoption. Um, So we're, yeah, we're in a very different time and I'm kind of surprised that we've, we've gotten as far as we have with the crypto space. Awesome. Well, Tegan, you've done such a good job explaining everything and breaking down the graph. It's something that I had spent a lot of time trying to wrap my head around, but you did a very good job explaining it. We have the same three questions that we ask every guest. But before that, I want to ask you one last question. It kind of touches on what you were just talking about with regard to evolution in the space and kind of looking back how much has changed from you know, discovering Ethereum in 2016 to now, where do you see things going in the future? I mean, you painted a bit of a picture in terms of, of Web3 adoption and how you think that's going to to happen over the next year or so. But like five years down the road, wh- what do you see like uh, kind of changing in terms of, of how everyone uses the space? Yeah. So I think in five years, we will have seen like mass adoption with Web3. I think most Web2 companies will either have found a way to kind of spin off and have like open public data, at least as a portion of their business. Or what we'll see is this kind of continued mass exodus from Web2 and centralized finance into the crypto space. And I think those that like adopt crypto early will be in much better places when it comes to like the banks or like the Robin Hoods of the world. Um so I'm excited about that. And I'm just excited to see like the brand new use cases that we could never even like imagine once we have like that decentralized Web3 stack solidified. Awesome. So as I mentioned, we like to ask every guest the same three questions. It's a little segment we call You Had Me at Crypto. Alf's going to ask you those questions. All right, Tagan, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So the first question is, who is your favorite person to follow in the crypto space? 
Oh man, just one. I would say probably, <laughs> probably Vitalik, but, or maybe like Sam from Are We, Vini from The Graph, obviously. Um, but so many. I think Vitalik is the most popular ad. Oh, We've never so. broken it so. down, but I feel like it's I've heard be. Vitalik's name more than anyone. So. Yeah. I, I have a lot of respect for him. I think like he really holds the values strong in the, in the crypto space and is just like a great role, role model for all of us. Yeah, definitely. Uh, all right. The second question here. What will the price of Bitcoin be 10 years from now? Oh, man. Well, I mean, I think Bitcoin could potentially become the global reserve currency. I think Bitcoin... It's like better gold than gold. Bitcoin is like better money than fiat money. Um, and of course, like inflation keeps persisting, like what we've seen. We'll see. Yeah, Bitcoin at all time highs. I don't like to make predict predictions like this, but like right now I think the market cap for Bitcoin is like 800 million and gold is like 11.5 trillion or something. So Bitcoin is very undervalued, but I'll, I'll leave it to everyone to kind of do the math. 10 years out, you can't give us a number. <laughs> That's fair. What That's fair. No, people can do the math. People can do the math based yeah. on the gold valuation. No, we, we've had, um, um, what do I think? Ah, oh, well, this isn't my time to guess. But I will say that, <laughs> I will say we recently put out an episode where we did all of our guest predictions from okay. the last year. Um, and a million was the most popular answer. Just like that number specifically. Yeah. I think it's like in people's head of like, but the the most bullish answer was well over 10 million. So okay. yep, yep. <laughs> I do, it, it is a funny conversation when you talk about Bitcoin becoming the reserve currency because then it's like, well, it's worth a Bitcoin, you know, like what else one do Bitcoin's we say? You know? so. the, the next though, so million was the most popular answer. The next most popular answer was zero. So Oh, wow. <laughs> Definitely not that. Not happening. <laughs> all right. So the third question here, what is the most underrated coin or project in all of crypto? Other than the graph. Um, I, I would say like maybe Arweave out of the ones that have launched so far. Um, I really think Arweave is going to be a very core component of the stack. And yeah, very underrated. I'm also really excited about like Celestia, um, Connect and Ceramic. They haven't launched yet. So yeah, a little bit of alpha for your audience. And can you uh, just give a quick high level? What is Arweave? I'm not familiar. Arweave is similar to IPFS. So it's a storage layer, but it's okay. stored permanently. And so Sam is the founder of Arweave. Sam Williams also shares like very similar values with Bitcoin, Ethereum, the graph. Um, and I think that oftentimes like those values are what are going to carry us, you know, 10 years into the future. So very bullish. Nice. Awesome. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Tegan. We love chatting to you. Thank you for appearing on this episode of Show Me the Crypto. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Show Me the Crypto. Please make sure to subscribe as well as rate and review this podcast.